third through fifth graders, you are dismissed to your class in the back, so you can go ahead and head there. Uh, Everyone else in here, you can go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible and need one, if you raise your hand, we'd be happy to bring you one. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible of your own, that's yours to keep. Uh, That's a gift to you. Um, But Isaiah chapter 11, um, while you're turning there, uh, I'll just keep talking. Um, I walked in this morning, Dan Savage asked me what I was going to preach about, and I told him, peace. And he looked at me and he said, so are you going to talk about hippies and stuff? And I, I looked at him and I said, funny enough, I'm actually going to start by referencing John Lennon. So, sort of. The reason I'm going to talk about John Lennon starting out is because in 1971, he wrote the song, Imagine, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with that song. Uh, And if you know anything about the 60s and 70s, those were two decades filled with uh, tension and violence and volatility and, and uneasiness, anything but peace. And upon its release, that song just exploded in popularity. And ever since then, it's it's continued to be one of the most well-known and most played songs in history. In fact, Rolling Stone ranks it as the third greatest song of all time. Just think about how many songs have been written ever, and they rank it the third greatest of all time. It's often played at opening and closing ceremonies of the Olympics. Uh, It's been covered countless times by countless artists. It's appeared in commercials and movies. Uh, New Year's Day, or New Year's Eve, at the ball drop is played every single year. And like I said, most of you are probably familiar with it. You probably know the words. And if you don't know it off the top of your head, if they were to come up here and just play those few opening chords on the piano and sing the lyrics, I'm almost sure you would recognize it. But everybody knows this song. Everybody loves the song, too. And it's always played around times when we want peace um, and things like that. And it's easy to see why it resonates with us to this day. Just think of all the things happening in our world today. With violence on the campus at Ohio State this past week. There's racial tension across the country. There's uneasiness in the election season and after the results of it. There was a deadly plane crash in South America where I think somewhere of 70 people were killed. There's the Middle East and the the mess that that is with ISIS uh, and terrorism and and violence and, and all of those things. In our personal lives, there are countless tragedies and and personal anxieties and things that keep us up at night and cause us to wake up in the morning and just worry about things that are going to happen and the things that are going to come. And so with all this going on, it's easy to see why this song continues to resonate with us so deeply. It's so popular and it's so widely known because in that song, John Lennon tapped into something that resonates deeply within each one of us. And that something is a deep longing for an idyllic state of peacefulness. In the song, again, if you're familiar with it, Lenin calls his listeners to just imagine a world in which there is no heaven or hell, no religion, no killing and dying, no possessions, no greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man, perfect peace on earth. 
John Lennon himself was most likely a secular humanist, so he clearly wasn't writing this song from a Christian worldview, not from that perspective by any means. But again, what he, you can see just from him writing this song, from somebody who's clearly not a Christian, he clearly reveals that we all have this deep longing hardwired into us so that we all want that kind of peace that he's talking about in that song. Even if we don't agree on the means by which that's accomplished or what that exactly looks like, we all want that kind of peace that he's talking about. And that's why that song is played so often at the Olympics, at New Year's Eve. Think about it. At New Year's Eve, the ball drops. It's a new year. And so they sing the song because everyone's thinking, maybe this is the year that the, the vision that this song casts will finally be fulfilled on earth. Yet the next year comes and there's just as much, if not more, violence and tension and anxiety and worry than the year before. But we all desire this kind of peace. I think of, in this Christmas season, I think of Christmas Day and that peace that you experience on that day. At least I do. I, I can sleep in. There are no worries. I can take a nap. There are no deadlines to meet, no places to go, no things to do, nothing to worry about. That is one of the most peaceful days that I ever experience in my life. Yet, inevitably, that peace is broken either the next day or the next now, we all desire this kind of peace, and not just some kind of temporary peace where it lasts for a day or for a few hours. We might experience that at times, but ultimately what that peace is pointing forward to as something that we desire is a deep and abiding peace, a peace between all creatures on earth, a peace between all people on earth, and most importantly, a peace between us and our God. Right, a peace uh, that it transcends anything that we know. It's characterized by just general well-being, security, health, welfare, kindness, joy. That we all desire this kind of peace. The Bible talks a lot about peace. And in fact, there's a Hebrew word for this kind of peace that we're talking about. This general well-being and welfare and good-naturedness between everything that exists. The Hebrew word is shalom. All right, go ahead, go ahead and say that. Go ahead and say the word shalom. Shalom, like you're a bunch of Hebrew scholars now. Because you know that. Shalom. The, New, the Old Testament frequently speaks of peace or Shalom. And when it does, it has in mind this, this kind of peace that we all desire, this general well-being, welfare, prosperity, goodness. And it permeates through all aspects of life. We all desire this peace, and it's an innate human longing because we were created to live in this kind of peace. And at one point in time, we did live in this kind of peace, in this shalom. It was in the Garden of Eden that we lived in this peace. It was in the Garden of Eden that there was perfect peace between all creatures and all of creation. No animal violence, no natural disasters, no death of any kind, no disease. It was in the Garden of Eden that humanity lived in perfect peace. Husband and wife lived in perfection, no arguments, no violence, no tension, no uneasiness. 
And most importantly, it was in the Garden of Eden that man lived at peace with God, walking with him in the midst of the garden. Perfect shalom, peace, well-being, prosperity, fullness, and joy. But we know the story. When man sinned, they were expelled from the garden, and their existence, their life of peace was forever broken. No longer would there be peace between humans, but now there would be enmity and strife and anger and murder. In fact, the very next chapter, Genesis 4, Adam's two, Adam and Eve's two sons, one murders the other. Peace broken. Right? No longer would there be uh, peace in, in creation. There would now be death in the animal kingdom, death in plants of all sorts, uh, disease, natural disasters, tornadoes, tsunamis, hurricanes, earthquakes. And no longer will there be peace between God and man. Scripture is clear that outside of Christ, we've become enemies of God and are now hostile in mind towards him. And this is the world in which we live today, characterized by anything but peace and welfare and goodness and fullness and joy. But again, all of us have that innate sense that something's not right. You can look at every worldview out there, every religion there is, and they all will agree on that something's not right. What's the problem? How is it fixed? This is exactly what John Lennon was tapping into when he wrote the song Imagine. He didn't know what the solution was. He probably was confused in his worldview, didn't exactly know what the problem was or the solution. He just knew something's wrong, it needs fixed. Let's just try to imagine that and maybe we can attain it. And we all resonate with that song because we all long for that peace. We all long for the peace and the shalom of Eden. We all long to return to Eden. The good news is that the the Christian worldview, the the vision, the the Bible casts for the world and for reality is much better than anything John Lennon could imagine. And so we don't have to try to imagine what it would look like, a, a world of peace. We don't have to imagine what maybe might be the problem and how we could possibly attain it. The Bible gives us a clear solution. And that clear solution, it says, is a coming king, a king who will establish a kingdom of peace here on this earth forever. And this is where we get to Isaiah chapter 11. Right, the prophet Isaiah was a prophet to the nation of Israel in a time of great turmoil. Right, there were the kings of Israel, they were descendants of David following in his footsteps as king, but they had become increasingly, increasingly rebellious and idolatrous. Not only were they leading the people into blatant idolatry, but they were also leading the people to forget the promises of God that were made to King David that his kingdom would endure forever. And so because of the rebellion and idolatry of Israel's kings, there was a great deal of tension and uncertainty in Israel as well as a great deal of unbelief and idolatry. And so it's into that mess that God sends the prophet Isaiah to speak and prophesy about things that are going to happen to Israel and things that are going to come in the future. Right? 
in chapter 11 is where we'll start. Actually, we're going to start at the end of chapter 10. Chapter 10, God is showing Isaiah a vision of another nation, a foreign nation, Assyria, who's going to come and who's going to invade and then occupy the nation of Israel because of their unbelief and their idolatry. It's going to be a punishment for their uh, persistent sin. And so God's showing Isaiah this. This will come to pass. Assyria will invade. They will occupy your land as a punishment for your sin. And so he, he talks, look at Isaiah ten twenty eight. He talks about the, the army of Assyria advancing. They're going to come from the north in Israel. They're going to advance, moving southward. And things are going to look hopeless. And if you look at just verses 28 through 31, I won't read them, but he describes the advance of the Assyrian army as they move southward towards the city of Jerusalem, which was the, the, the capital, the, the hub of Israel. If that falls, then all Israel falls. So he describes the advance of the Assyrian army. And then verse 32 says, This very day he will halt at Nob, he will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. So he, he won't get to Jerusalem. He's going to advance southwards. Assyria is going to move, advance, keep taking land. But they will halt at Nob. It's there that their advance will stop. And all they'll be able to do is shake their fist at Jerusalem, nothing more. All right, we read on. Verse 33, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. The image God gives is he compares Assyria to a great forest. And he says, imagine this great forest. Now imagine a, a great and terrifying force just wiping the whole forest out in just one blow. And this is what God says, this is what I will do to Assyria once I halt their advance. I will lop their bows with terrifying power. They'll be hewn down. I will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. And so God will bring judgment on the sinful nation of Assyria, and there'll be no more. And now the stage is set for chapter 11. All right, so chapter 10 flows right into chapter 11. All right, I know that we, we put a chapter break there. There's really not much for break. It, it flows right into it. And you can see that because they say, uh, he's, Ends chapter 10 by talking about the forest of Assyria and how it gets chopped down and destroyed. He starts chapter 11, verse 1, like this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So he's continuing the, the image of the forest now. And he wants you to just envision a forest that's been chopped down. And so there's just a vast land of nothing but stumps. So imagine that if you can. Just look before you and just stumps everywhere. No life, no branches, no trees, just stumps. Judgment has come on Assyria and Israel. There's nothing left in the land but dead and dry stumps. And he says, this is what Israel is now. They've been invaded and occupied by Assyria. 
They, God has brought judgment on Israel. He's brought judgment on Assyria. They're only stumps left in the land. All right, but then, you notice, he says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So again, imagine you're looking out over the land, nothing but just dead, dry, tree stumps, a, a hopeless situation. And all of a sudden, you, you just spot one stump. And there's something coming out of it, a little shoot with maybe a few little green leaves starting to protrude from it. Right? This is a, it's the stump of Jesse. All dead stumps, but one stump, the stump of Jesse. There's something happening there. Something is just starting to grow out of it. Right away, too, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, you should know, stump of Jesse, Jesse is David, King David's father. And so when God gives Isaiah this vision, he's seeing something, or someone, rather, coming from David's line, from Jesse. He's beginning to see, okay, from King David, another descendant will rise up. In 2 Samuel 7, 16, God promises David that his house and his kingdom shall endure forever. So God made that promise to David. Israel has been judged. There's nothing left. But Isaiah sees this stump coming from the shoot of Jesse, from David, and it's coming up. God is going to keep his promise and be faithful to Israel. And so when Isaiah sees that there will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, he's seen a descendant of David rising back up to the throne out of the ashes to reestablish David's throne in his kingdom. And he says this branch will come, this king will come bearing fruit. Now he, won't, he won't be like the kings of Israel before him who were unfruitful, who led the, the nation into rebellion and sin and idolatry and poverty and being invaded and occupied as a judgment for their sin. The previous kings of Israel failed to bear fruit in their kingship, but this king won't be like them. He will bear fruit unlike the others. Moving on, verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So King David was empowered by the Holy Spirit But when it says the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, it's giving the indication that the Holy Spirit will rest upon this coming king, this shoot of Jesse, in a very special kind of way. He goes on. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Right. So the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, shall rest upon him so strongly that he will give him the the wisdom and the understanding of the Lord. The the Holy Spirit searches everything, even the depth of God. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But this king will be so filled with the Spirit that he will possess the utmost wisdom and understanding in the things of God. If you've ever been in a position of leadership, I'm sure you've struggled with uh, wisdom understanding. Okay, what's the, what's the best thing to do in this situation? I'm struggling to understand this. Uh, just what do I do in this? 
I know, I, I see this and I think of, of coaching basketball and football. Okay, what do I do in this game situation? What play do I call here? Um, I don't know. I'm trying to find wisdom to guide me as I lead the people who are under me. And with this king, there will be no confusion. There will be no lack of wisdom. There will be no poor decisions. He won't make a bad play call that will cost us the game. He will rule with perfect wisdom and perfect understanding because the Spirit of the God rests upon him so that when he rules, he will rule in the best way possible. He will achieve the best and the highest ends through the best means possible. Because he possesses perfect wisdom and perfect understanding. More than that, because of his wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might is upon him. In his wisdom and understanding, he will always, again, lead in the best way possible in his counsel. More than that, he will always have the might to carry out his perfect plans and apply his perfect wisdom. On top of all this, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The spirit will rest upon him so strongly that he will have a perfect knowledge and fear of the Lord. Psalm 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all those who practice it have a good understanding. So this king will have this wisdom and this counsel and this might and this understanding because he has the Spirit of the Lord upon him, and the Spirit of the Lord has enabled him to have a perfect fear and knowledge of the Lord. And the knowledge of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Moving on, verse 3. His delight will not be, excuse me, verse 3, let me read it first. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. This king who's coming, this shoot of Jesse, he won't be like other earthly kings. He won't be greedy. He won't be a coward. He won't involve himself in vain pursuits of fame and money and whatever else you can imagine. He won't delight in those things. He won't delight in sinful gain. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. Back to verse 2. He'll possess, the Spirit of the Lord will be upon him. He'll possess a perfect knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will have perfect understanding and wisdom. He will rule with counsel and might, and he will delight in it. He will not fear the Lord reluctantly. He will not lead his people in wisdom begrudgingly. He will do what is right in perfect wisdom, and he will delight in it. And he will delight to exercise his perfect rule with counsel and might. 
He shall, ju- he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Right, this king won't be fooled. There's no pulling one over on this king. He knows all things. He knows what's in the hearts of his people, his subjects. He will, he will not judge by outward appearances. He will not judge by what he sees or what he hears or what he perceives to possibly be right. He will judge and rule by what is right and what is correct and wise and what accords with the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. Moving on in verse 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Again, he won't judge according to what he sees, but what appears to be right. He will do what is right. Under his sovereign and gracious rule, crime will not go unpunished. Criminals will not escape justice. They won't run from his rule. There will be no injustice of any sort. The the criminals won't get off scot-free. Innocent people won't be condemned or punished. But he will deal out justice perfectly. Everyone will be justly given what they deserve. He will deal with equity. Because righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. He is righteous and faithful to the things of God at the core. He will deal justly and rule with justice in his perfect wisdom and knowledge and fear of the Lord. This is the, the coming king that God gives the vision of to Isaiah. This is the, the, the vision of the coming king that Isaiah sees. And I think we can all agree that this is a good vision. Right? Don't we wish our earthly leaders could be more like this? Or we could have more presidential candidates or, or other politicians who would more resemble this or, or kings or queens who would look like this? Is this not the ideal ruler and king? And if verses 1 through 5 describe the king, verses 6 through 9 will describe the kingdom of this coming king and what his rule will bring. The measure of any king is what his kingdom looks like. We've had good kings in the past. We've had good presidents in the past with good morals, good ideals, and godly virtues. But they don't possess the the power and the counsel or the authority to put that in place and to establish that across the board in their kingdoms. So what will this king's kingdom look like? Will he succeed in implementing his virtues and his morals and his righteousness and justice in his kingdom or not. 
Right, let's read on. In verses 6 through 9, when Isaiah sees the vision of this king's kingdom, here's what he sees. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah sees the kingdom of this king, and he sees a kingdom of peace, of shalom, of well-being and prosperity and fullness and joy. There is peace between all aspects of creation, between animals. There's peace between animals and, and humans. Right? There's no more violence, no more sickness, no more death. It says, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Now, I don't know how many of you parents out there would let your young child just go and play in the hole of a cobra. But it says, in the king's kingdom, this won't be unheard of. Because he will so establish his peace and justice and righteousness that the, the animals will be affected. The whole order of the universe will be restored. The brokenness and the bondage of creation will be foregone. Everything will be restored as it was in Eden. A perfect state of shalom. There will be peace between men of all kinds. Verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. If there is peace between humans and animals and animals and other animals, how much more peace will there be between men and other men? That there won't be any more wars. There will be no more racial or political tension. No more violence. No more shootings. Lastly, there will be peace between God and man in this kingdom. All right, look down at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. All right, the root of Jesse, the descendant of David, this new king, He will bring peace between God and man. And Isaiah sees that peace. When he says, the king will stand as a signal for the peoples. They'll they'll come to him. They'll draw near to his throne forever. No more hostility between God and man. They've now been reconciled. That they can now draw near to him in peace. So this king, this, this shoot of Jesse has established Peace of all kinds. Peace in creation, peace between men, and peace between men and their creator God. And when this king comes, he will come and he will reinstate the shalom of Eden. The peace, the fullness, the well-being, the joy of Eden will be restored 100-fold when this king comes and establishes his kingdom. 
He will vanquish all his enemies. He will drive out all wickedness and unrighteousness. He will rule with perfect justice and wisdom. He will bring peace between God, man, and creature. His people will live under his sovereign and gracious rule in this state of shalom forever. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas. The coming of this king. Right, we're familiar with the prop- prophecies of Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 53. Right, Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, the, the common Christmas passages. There's going to come a son born of a virgin, wonderful counselor, mighty God. Right, on, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from the time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. Right, then we're familiar with Isaiah 53 too. He was crushed for our iniquities, he was pierced for our transgressions. All these passages prophesying the coming of this king. And all these prophecies, Isaiah 7, 9, 11, 53, were all fulfilled in part roughly 2,000 years ago when Christ came the first time, born humbly in a manger in a barn as an infant in human flesh. Where we can't get confused is that Christ has come. He came the first time humbly as an infant. And when he came the first time, he came the first time to deal with the sin of humanity. He he came the the first time to fulfill Isaiah 53, to come as the, the perfect spotless lamb to take away the sin of the world. And so at Christmas, we celebrate that. The fact that Christ has come once in the humblest of means, taking on human flesh so that he might identify with us in our weakness, yet without sin. We celebrate the fact that he went to the cross after living the perfect life, that he died the death we deserved at the cross, that he rose again victorious. And now that by our faith in him, we are united to him so that his perfect righteousness is counted to us after our sin was counted to him, that there is therefore no condemnation for us who are in Christ. So we look back to the cross and we celebrate that at Christmas. That Christ has come once, that he has successfully and perfectly forever dealt with our sin and reconciled us to God forever. But we also look forward to his coming. He came once as a king, or not as a king, he came once as an infant, humbly, as a servant, to serve his people, to die for them. When he comes again, he will come as a king returns. He will come in glory and in power, and he will establish his kingdom forever that we've just described. Hebrews 9.28 says this, talking about the coming of Christ. It says, so Christ 
having been offered once to bear the sins of many. So he's, he's come once. We celebrate that at Christmas. He came once. He was offered once. He bore our sin and, and took care of it, dealt with it. We celebrate that at Christmas. So Christ, having appeared once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. He's already done that. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And this is a position in which we find ourselves now, in between the times, looking back to the cross, celebrating his coming once to deal with our sins, and now looking forward to his second coming as glorious and mighty king to establish his rule and reign on this earth forever. Jesus is coming again. And we've mentioned that a number of times already today here. And again, when he comes, he will come as a king, dealing out justice and establishing his kingdom forever. When he comes, he will usher in the new shalom. He'll bring peace on earth, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no mourning, no more sorrow, no more pain, and no more death. He will lead his people into everlasting and ever-increasing joy, peace, and glory as they enjoy him forever. This is the hope of Christmas. A message of peace as we look back to Christ's coming once and what he dealt with at the cross. And as we look forward to his coming as king, to establish his kingdom of peace. Do you feel the hope in this message in Isaiah 11 as you read it? As you look out on the land of your life, on the the stumps that are there, the dry and desolate land, right? See the stump, the, the shoot of Jesse coming forth, bringing life and peace. Isaiah 11 speaks peace and hope into the most grim of situations. A week and a half ago, as many of you know, I was in Madison, Wisconsin, watching my grandpa slowly decay and eventually die. And by the way, I appreciate many of you praying for us and for our family, um, and many of you just expressing... uh, your, to us, just your concern. And so thank you for that. We appreciate that. Now I'll say he was a believer. Absolutely. So we all, including him, were very at peace with it. Uh, but as we stood the, the night before we got there, and we, we, we stood by his bed and just watched him in pain. We watched him suffer. Now, there, were, there were two thoughts running through my head as I just sat there and, and watched. One, my first thought was, this isn't right. It's not supposed to be this way. Like this, this pain and this sickness and death that's coming, it's not supposed to be this way. And it's not supposed to be this way. We were created to live in the shalom of Eden. That was my first thought. My second thought was this. Everything's all right. Because even though it's not supposed to be this way, 
he's going he's gonna to go, he's going to be with Jesus in paradise this very day, just like Jesus told the, the thief on the cross. And one day, Jesus is going to return to this earth. And when he returns, he, my grandpa, he's going to be with him. If I've died by that point, I'm going to come with him too. If I'm still here on this earth, I'll rise with him, be given a glorified body with him, and then come back to this earth where Christ will establish his kingdom. He will come with his saints in glory. He's going to make all things new. He will set everything straight. He will make everything right. No more sickness, no more pain, no more death. His saints will rule with him on this earth in glorified bodies, glorified resurrection bodies with Christ forever. In Shalom. And so as I sat there and watched that, I thought about that. King Jesus is coming again. I actually was preparing this sermon in part that day. I was just on my computer. We had a lot of time to just sit around. And just thinking through this passage as I sat there and watched the situation. King Jesus is coming. When he comes and he establishes his kingdom on this earth, my grandpa will be there in his resurrection body. I'll be there. For all of you who are in Christ, you'll be there. When Jesus establishes his kingdom and his throne forever, you will be there if you are in Christ, ruling with him, living in perfect shalom on this earth forever. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. And so for those of us, again, who have believed on the name of Jesus... For our salvation, we value him, we treasure him, we look back at his coming, we worship him and adore him, we look forward to his second coming. For those of us in you who are believers, who are true Christians, we don't have to just imagine a world of peace, as John Lennon did. Now, I like that song, and I'll listen to it occasionally. But I'll listen to it and some of the things he says, and I'll think, and thank you, John, for the song, but I don't have to imagine this. Right? I have a much better, a much more glorious vision of the future than you do because God has given it to us in his word. It's not just some fanciful dream that maybe one day we could just step into this kind of peace and somehow attain this, this you know, peace all over earth between men and, and well-being. It's, it's going to happen. We can rest assured that it's going to happen because, again, God has revealed it to us in His Word. His Word does not fail. He came and sent Christ to die on the cross for us to ensure us that His Word does not fail. Christ has borne our sin once. We look back to the cross thanking God for what he's done for us in Christ. And we can rest assured that he, Christ, will hold us fast until that day. And we will see his kingdom. He will not let us fall away. He will hold us fast. And we will be there with him in his kingdom forever. So as we wait for him and as we look forward to the peace he's going to bring, 
we can begin to experience something of that peace here and now. So all of this, how is, okay, practical application. How is this practical? Again, do you read Isaiah 11? Do you feel the hope and the peace for the worst of situations? Do you look out upon the, the landscape of your life and see nothing but stumps? This is coming a king, a shoot of Jesse. He will make all things new and make all things right. And again, we're not there yet. He's coming. It will happen. But until that day, we look forward, we look back to the cross, knowing that he's reconciled us to God and brought peace. And we look forward to a second coming, knowing that we can begin to experience something of that peace here and now. So that's what we celebrate at Christmas. Looking back to the cross, looking forward to Christ coming again as conquering king. All right, would you stand with me and let's pray. Father in heaven, we, God, we honor and glorify you here today. Knowing that you are the God of hope and peace, who will make all things new, who will set all things straight. Father, we know that you gave Israel the hope of a coming king in their most hopeless of situations. And Father, we look out on our lives, we think of all the hopeless situations that we have dealt with and will deal with in the days and years to come. And Father, we trust everything is going to be okay because we look back to the cross knowing that Christ in his great love for us while we were yet sinners has died for us and reconciled us to you God we look forward to his second coming as king when he will set all things straight Father we just long to be on the new earth with you ruling in our resurrection bodies Lord give us hope this Christmas season Not in gifts, not in financial gain, not in any earthly possessions, but give us hope in our coming King and His coming kingdom. Father, we love you and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.